Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. This will be our fourth show. His name is Tim Tate, and he comes to us from the UK. And we did a show back in 2019. We covered one of his books titled Hitler's Secret Army, A Hidden History of Spies, Saboteurs, and Traitors in World War II. And then just this year, we did two books. One was Spy Who Was Left Out in the Cold, The Secret History of Agent Golanevsky in August, and then just uh, last month or two months ago, the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, crime conspiracy and cover up a new investigation. So I highly recommend those books. People go check those out. But today we're going to talk about uh, another side of his career, which is the filmmaking side. And it's a documentary that was made in, I think, filmed in 2009, published 2010, titled Dirty Little Secrets. Really fascinating. You can see it on Vimeo. And I will post the link to the show in the show notes of this show, but it talks about his uh, really entry into this closed society of North Korea and kind of a story that took place during the Korean War. But Tim Tate can talk more about that. So, Tim, are you there? I'm here, and thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming back. Delighted to talk with you again. Can you talk about kind of like, maybe we've talked about your books, but your filmmaking career people might not know about. Can you talk about that and what brought you to this uh, documentary, one-hour documentary on Al Jazeera titled Dirty, Dirty Little Secrets? Yeah, I mean, I, I, my day job for 30-odd years was as a documentary filmmaker, um, and I made in, primarily investigative documentaries for all British and a lot of international networks, including networks in the U.S. and abroad. And in about 2009, I, st I started working for Al Jazeera's English network. I mean, it's important to stress Al Jazeera English, which is not the Arabic network. Um, and I did so because it was then pretty much one of the last places in the British broadcasting landscape, the last networks, which was prepared to investigate serious stories and serious stories of geopolitical, historical interest. And it had a commitment to doing that. And I spent several years at Jazeera, um, based in London, making films for them about difficult issues. And I have to give them their due. They backed that. Um, it wasn't always an easy process, but um, we did, I think, some, some good work. So, North Korea. In 2009, I, I think I became one of what is a relatively small pool of journalists and filmmakers to spend much time in North Korea, inside North Korea, um, making a, a one-hour documentary. It's, I mean, it's fair to say that it had taken me four years to persuade the North Koreans to let me in. I went in officially. I didn't sneak across the border as some journalists do for a couple of hours. I wanted to spend time inside North Korea making a film, and that required several days of filming inside this impossibly difficult country. And so I think I began trying to persuade the North, the North Korean regime to let me in, in around 2005. And it took until 2009 before it finally, the North Korean regime finally said, 
yeah, okay, we'll give you a visa, we'll let you come in, and we'll let you make a film inside North Korea. Um, and the reason, there were, there, were, there were two reasons I think it let me in. The first is that the story I wanted to, the film I wanted to make, the story I wanted to examine and investigate is a story that North Korea has been trying to have told for 60 odd years. And the second is that I was working with a Japanese academic who had spent a lot of time in North Korea, had won their trust, and essentially he vouched for me, provided, and my film was going to follow him on his investigations inside North Korea. And that are the two reasons, I think, why they let me in this one time. Right. His name was Mori, and you were, when you got in, they followed you the entire time you were in there, right? Yeah, I mean, I want to preface all of this by saying nothing that I say should be taken as um, an apologia for North Korea. It is a repressive one-party state with a, an absolutely vile human rights record. And nor should anything that we talk about, we discuss, I think, be taken as in any way denigrating the courage and service of those who fought in the Korean War. It's a truism, isn't it? All It's a cliche. All wars are, are vile and horrible and hell. North, the, North, the Korean War was, for reasons of climate and geography and many other things, a particularly vile and difficult conflict. So with those caveats, yeah, North Korea, when it, to get in to North Korea, once they agree to give you a visa, you have to agree to work under their strictures. And those strictures are that essentially its officials will control every last dot and comma of what you do and say inside the country. <clears throat> it's not, you know, an easy place physically to get to. You can't fly direct from the West. You have to go via, primarily via China. And when you land at Pyongyang Airport, and when we landed at Pyongyang Airport, the first thing they do when they greet you is to require you to hand over your your mobile phone and your computer, any form of communication device. That, now, that stays with the North Korean regime for the duration of your stay. And it did for all of us for the three and a half days when we were filming inside North Korea. So it's not an easy place to get to, and it's absolutely not an easy place to work. Right. And you didn't stay in Pyongyang. You kind of traveled around the hinterlands too, right? Yeah, I mean, one of the things, I know we'll discuss the story itself in a moment, one of the, the things which was, I, for me, vital was not to stay in Pyongyang. Because Pyongyang is, you know, it's one thing, it's a city of sorts, but the vast majority of North Korean life happens outside Pyongyang. And it was important for me both for the 
journalism of the story, but also for to try and see and film what life is like in this in this country which is closed off to the rest of the world. I needed to go out and go up and down the hinterland, the byways of North Korea. It's not a huge country, so it's not difficult to do in several days if you're allowed to do it. Um, and to its credit, I suppose, North Korea said, okay, because of the nature of the story you're doing, because you're working with Professor Mori, you can come and do this. And the caveat, of course, is that everywhere you go, we take you, and everyone you speak to, we arrange for you to speak. And also, you have to pay a large sum of money for all of this, these privileges. But I travelled, and, and I don't think many other filmmakers have got to do this. I travelled all over North Korea. And you can see that in the background. You're capturing the landscapes, the people. It seems very rural to me, um, what what you captured in your video. Did you get that sense that it was? I mean, there's like famous kind of videos of, of satellites looking down at the difference between North and South Korea. And at night, South Korea is just full of lights and the freeways. And North Korea just looks like there may be two dots, like there's actually an electrical system there. Did you get that sense? Oh, yeah. I mean, North Korea is a pre primarily and predominantly rural agricultural state. I mean, it needs to be. It needs. It struggles desperately to feed itself. And you know, every every meter, every yard of land, cultivable land, is cultivated because it needs the food. So it's primarily rural and it is for various reasons, part of partly of its own making, partly due to Western sanctions, it is technologically backward. A lot of transport is in the hinterland, in the rural rural areas, is ox cart. Wow. You know, um, yes, you, we saw and filmed cars in Pyongyang, but the predominant mode of transport was bicycles. You know, it's not a technologically advanced nation. Wow. And you kind of get that feeling. I mean, this is 2009-10, too, so it's not, it's a decade ago, but it seems like they should have been. And they would had famines, too. I don't remember the years where they had had famines, but, yeah, very different society. I mean, famine in, famine in North Korea is endemic and it's endemic partly because of the North Korean regime's own policies and its attitude to the West and partly because the West has imposed sanctions which make it very difficult um, for the North Koreans to function as an economic state. Now you know where you assign the blame is not for me. That's a, that's a political question. I think it depends on which side of the political divide you stand. I, that's not my interest, and it wasn't what I was interested in in the film. Right. Can you talk about the backstory of what brought you to North Korea? Sure. The story itself dates back to 1952. So this is the, the middle of, middle towards the end of the Korean War. And in the winter of 1952, February, the North Koreans and their Chinese allies made 
very loud public allegations that the United States had used biological warfare against North Korean citizens and the North Korean army. And specifically, it claimed, they claimed that the US Air Force had dropped germ bombs, bombs filled with insects and shellfish and feathers which had been infected, deliberately infected, with cholera, bubonic plague, and other pathogens. That is, if those allegations are true, and were true, it's a war crime. Biological warfare is illegal under the Geneva Conventions and has been long before um, the Korean conflict. Those were the allegations. The US attitude was, in 1952, and has remained unchanged, that they're nonsense, that these allegations have no merit, that they are mere, merely communist propaganda. I wanted to see what, whether it was possible to find evidence to one way or the other. I approach this with a completely open mind. On the one side, you have North Korea and China saying, and have continued to say, the US committed this war crime. On the other hand, you have the US saying, no, we didn't, and this is communist propaganda, don't believe it. Somewhere, somewhere, there was evidence, and part of that evidence lay in North Korea, and that's why I wanted to get access to North Korea to try and find eyewitnesses and try and find actual evidence. And that brought, brought you to individuals. Please continue, go ahead. So, um, you know, I should say, I wanted to find that if it existed, because there was no guarantee that it, that it existed. You know, it could have turned out that very quickly, this be, it became apparent this was a crude bit of North Korean and Chinese propaganda. Equally, it could have turned out that there was prima facie evidence, you know, what we might call a probable cause. I set out to say, can we find evidence which supports one or other contention? And, and there was stuff back in 52, so this was all kind of uh, memorialized in video and things like that, right? So you had that historical basis on film that this dispute took place. Yeah, there were two, if you like, external pieces of potential evidence. The first was that there was an international scientific commission which was invited in by North Korea very quickly after the allegations were publicized and it was made up of scientists from qualified scientists from europe britain brazil and elsewhere and the soviet union and it produced a 600 page report an incredibly detailed report including an absolute treasure trove of scientific data, including autopsy reports and tests. And it concluded, yes, this happened. And 
these biological weapons were deployed. The North Koreans had produced footage, film footage, which they said showed these the bombs lying on the snow-covered ground in North Korea with the insects crawling about in en masse, masses of them, on the snow-covered ground. Now, you don't get insects, particularly those kinds of insects, on snow at that time of year right. in North Korea. So there were two external pieces of evidence, if you like. But what was important to me was to see if there was eyewitness testimony and then how credible that eyewitness testimony might be. And there was a period of negotiation with the North Koreans. They said, there's no point in me coming unless we actually, I can film people who claim to have witnessed this. And in the end, we were allowed to interview men, old men, who claimed to have been eyewitnesses. They were, and I don't say this in pejorative terms, they were peasants. These were farmers. These weren't government officials. And although they, were, although they were provided to us by the North Korean regime, I had no means of establishing any basis for, for knowing who they were other than what the North Koreans told me. From their... I mean, you only had to look at their hands and their faces in which the soil was ingrained from decades of work on the land. These weren't government officials. These were, these were farmers. And the story they told was, by and large, consistent with the allegations. They talked about witnessing these bombs dropping. They talked about witnessing the insects emerging from the specially created bombs. And they talked about the, the sickness and widespread death of their families, which ensued. All of that is important testimony. And I have to say that the North Koreans did not put any barrier in our way for us to film this. In fact, they facilitated this. You might say, well, they would, wouldn't they? But at the same time, you have to have weigh in the balance that this is eyewitness testimony, alleged eyewitness testimony, and it supports independent scientific conclusions. Right. So you talk to kind of farmers, peasants, whatever, so that was then, and then you—they took you to a place where they had things of the bombs that were also filmed, right? Like almost the same type of uh, delivery mechanism type of bomb, right? Yeah, I mean, North Korea, and this is not uncommon for countries in that region who have fought wars against the United States, maintains a huge military museum in which a huge room or rooms are devoted to the story of this these this alleged war crime and it's filled with exhibits and it's filled with testimony and it's filled with what would appear to be convincing evidence 
And so, yes, we went and we filmed that and we filmed extensively in that. And that was part of the story. But there are two other parts of the story which we need to get to when you're ready. I'm ready. Go ahead. I mean, I think that I'm just trying to show this museum. They put a lot of time into this museum in North Korea, 2009. A lot of it's in English, surprisingly. It's subtitled in English. And this is Professor Mori here, who you basically filmed and followed around. Um, and people can see this on Vimeo. I'll put the link into the this documentary in the show notes. Yeah, and you know, if you if you went to that museum and you you've got the, the image of the of some of the exhibits there, you'd look at this and you'd say, well, you know, that's extraordinary. Did this could this ever have happened, or has this just been mocked up? Has it been created? By North Korea as a, as the Americans say, as a propaganda stunt. The first part, extra bit of the story, if you like, and we went to film this outside North Korea, was the story of a Japanese military unit, which before and during World War II, an Imperial Japanese Army unit called Unit 731 had developed, had become the uh, Japan had become the first country to develop both bacteriological warfare using insects as what are called vectors, the way of delivering plague and other toxin, and had created exactly these weapons, these bombs. They're known as leaflet bombs because generally they're used to drop leaflets. They don't explode when you when you drop them. They spring open and what's inside spills out. Normally it's leaflets. Allegedly, in this case, it was the infected pathogens. And, you know, if this sounds like something from science fiction, I wanted to track back and see where the science had been developed. And it was developed in Manchuria, in China, by the occupying Japanese army, by this Unit 731, in the mid-1930s. And it had carried out the most grotesque human experiments, experiments on living humans, to test out how this would work. The man who led Unit 731 was a Japanese military officer called Ishii. He should have been tried as a war criminal at the end of the Second World War. He wasn't. He was, and this is not me saying this, this is US government documents subsequently de declassified, he was protected by the United States and by the United States military in return for providing to the United States this technology, this germ warfare technology. He handed over all the data, the details, the techniques to the US. And so from the late mid to late 1940s, the US had this capability. It had the means. And other documents in the US National Archives 
show that it had the motive. It showed that U U.S. Joint Chiefs, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, wanted to deploy biological weapons in Korea. It said, we need to do this. We need to do this under field conditions. In other words, in warfare. Well, there was only one war that they were fighting, and that was the Korean War. Right. And they had, sorry to interrupt, but they were discussing dropping nukes. So you could but, see the intense level of thought they were having at that time. Yeah, I mean, the Korean War was was grinding to a stalemate by the start of 1952. Um, and you know, the US is looking at this and saying, what do we do? And so there was discussion. About, I mean, it had already dropped vast amounts of napalm much long before Vietnam, this, this is in Korea, in the Korean War. Um, it had already done that. It had considered but backed away, thankfully, from using nuclear weapons. And the Joint Chiefs said, we need to do this. We need to deploy biological weapons. Again, this isn't me saying this. This is U.S. official U.S. government document. So they had the means because Ishii had given it to them. They had the motive because the Joint Chiefs wanted to. The next leg, if you like, of the, the trifecta is means, motive, and opportunity. Did they have the opportunity? And that's where I suppose the final, almost final part of this jigsaw comes in. In, during the war, a number of, a lot of US service personnel, troops, Air Force officers, were captured by North Korea and its Chinese allies, and they were kept as prisoners of war. Several dozen of them in, during the war, made written confessions and gave filmed interviews, albeit propaganda interviews, because this was North Korea, in which they confessed to dropping germ bombs, biological bombs, over North Korea. And they, I mean, the confessions are extraordinarily detailed. They are names, dates, times, places, people. Now, again, it's fair to say that the US denied that and said from the outset, this is propaganda. They have been forced to make these confessions. And at the end of the war, when the POWs were repatriated, were brought back with some ceremony to the US, they were visited by the Department of Defense. And they were told in no uncertain terms that they had to retract these confessions. And they did. And the retraction of their confessions was also filmed. It was filmed by the Department of Defense. And I found those films. And you can compare and contrast if you, when you look at the film, my, my film, you can compare and contrast the confessions made in North Korea and the confessions of the retractions of those confessions made once the airmen got back to the US. And at that point, you've got conflicting stories, haven't you? 
Definitely, yeah. I mean, and yeah, it gets even more interesting because you actually tracked down one of the guys who was like this, what I'm showing on the screen here on YouTube, who was one of the captured air pilots. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I very by the time I I got to this in 2009, very few of them were still alive. But I tracked down one of the flyers. He was a navigator, an Air Force navigator, who had been shot down, had been held captive as a prisoner of war, who had made a very detailed eight-page written confession and had filmed, had been filmed making a verbal confession, and then who was filmed by the Department of the Defense in the US retracting that confession. So I had his confession in writing and on film, and I had his retraction on film. And it turned out that this man, Kenneth Enoch, was still alive. And so I asked if we could go and see him and interview him to ask about his experiences. And that was fascinating because much of what he said contradicted the retraction of his confession that he'd been asked to make by the Department of Defense. For example, he said on the Department of Defense film, yeah, I only confessed because they physically and mentally forced me to make this germ warfare confession. When I talked to him, he said no. There was no confession. There was no cruelty. There was no abuse. There was no pressure. They they treated me very well. Well, that doesn't. It's hard to reconcile both of those. And finally, I asked him about the his confession to make it to dropping being part of the germ warfare, the alleged germ warfare missions over North Korea. It's fair to say Kenneth Enoch was in his late 80s. He wasn't in great health, but he was he was lucid. And his wife was with him. And what he said, and again, you can see this in the film, was deeply equivocal. You could read this, if you wanted to, as both an admission that he did do what he had confessed to doing, and a conf confirmation of his retraction of that confession. You know, I, when we filmed this, we filmed at his, his home and we filmed for several hours, and we got it back to the edit suite, and I and the film editor and the series editor with whom I was working, well, you're faced with this, you're faced with an interview which is equivocal. What do you do? And I think we did what I think is the responsible thing to do. We didn't edit it heavily. We let it run. We let Kenneth Enoch tell this, his story in a way that he wanted to tell it, with stumbles, with equivocations, with bits of unclarity. And, you know, at the end of the day, end of the day I, I would invite viewers, if they watch it, to make their own mind up. We certainly didn't say, well, there it is, he's confirmed, or there it is, 
he's confirmed it was nonsense. We wanted viewers to make their own mind up. And he, he had admitted to going on bombing runs. So he had said, you're right, he like, he, he seems to want to omit some information when he's talking, in my opinion. But yeah, that's a, I mean, just you're just getting them on tape and seeing them admit it. It's up to the viewer to say it. But um, there's other things. I mean, I think Maury said that he believes that it was, you know, something was going on. But the fact is, is that the U.S. had, had done something similar in the, in, with the Germans where we adapted or took on Galen, you know, Von Braun, these other characters who were involved in, in really dark stuff, taking their ideas. So it's not really wouldn't be that surprising if that happened in, in Japan. Yeah, I think what gives it, it made it makes it even more sensitive, if you like, is that I think it's sometimes forgotten. The Korean War wasn't a US war. It wasn't the US at war with Korea with North Korea and, and its Chinese allies. This was a UN war. This was the very first United Nations war. It was led by the US, but for the United Nations, if these allegations were true, to have committed war crimes, because that's what biological warfare is, it's a war crime, is deeply, deeply disturbing and would have been at the time. Bear in mind, this is four years after the Nuremberg trials. That's right. all. Um, so I think there's that extra level of sensitivity about admitting. It, it's one thing for the US, it would be one thing for the US to say, yep, okay, we hold our hands up, we did something terrible and we shouldn't have, if they did. It's more difficult given that this was a UN coalition. Right. The consequences would have been just beyond severe. It would have been cataclysmic just because that was supposed to be kind of a just war and, you know, fighting for liberty or whatever, and then dropping a bacterial, bacteriological bomb is like the, the yeah. public relations would have been terrible. <laughs> yeah, somewhat. I mean, what I think this is leading, I suppose, leading us to is why does this matter? Why 60, 70 years later? Why does this matter? You know, isn't this just a piece of Cold War history? And the answer is no, it's not. It's very, very, very important now. You know, again, we need to remember the Korean War has never officially ended. There has never been a peace treaty. There's, there's an armistice, but both sides are technically still at war. Now, that weighs heavily on the minds of North of people inside North Korea. You know, it's it's easy for us in the West not to think too much about that. But North Korea, whatever else is true, is pretty much surrounded by American allies, most of which are equipped with the latest military technology, and most of which are deeply hostile to North Korea for reasons both good and bad. If you're inside North Korea, if you're a North Korean government official, 
let alone a North Korean peasant, knowing that this war hasn't ended, knowing that you're surrounded by and large by your enemies who are extraordinarily well resourced militarily, then that's a real worry. And I think, and this is where I think we're getting to, I think that is one of the drivers of North Korea's nuclear policy. It has, frankly, as a country, very few cards in its hand. One of them, one of them it hangs on to and plays moderately well, is, oh, we've got nuclear weapons now. Don't mess with us. We're developing this technology. Well, we'll pull back if you start, uh, if you treat us a bit better. That's the card it's playing. And it does so because it has very few other cards in its hand when, as it perceives itself, it's surrounded by enemies. Right. And I think it was interesting that you had that talk of this peasant saying, the Americans are evil. They drop these bacterial bombs where we have no idea from their perspective in the U.S. I mean, that's, I think, the benefit of getting behind the lines of North Korea and actually talking to what they perceive has happened to them. Um, yeah. And, it, it, yes, talking to those ordinary North Korean citizens was fascinating. And I think their testimony needs to be weighed in the balance. What was really fascinating to me was an interview with a government official. Now, North Korean government officials, when they rarely speak to Western media, they're following a script. Everything is utterly controlled by Pyongyang, the the regime in Pyongyang. You You don't step outside your lane and float an idea on your own, what you say has been approved. That's the nature of a one-party state. This official, whom we were required to interview, I asked him at one point on camera, what would it take, and this is, remember, 2009, what would it take, do you think, for North Korea to reopen or to be open to reopen, open to reopening negotiations with the United States about its nuclear weapon program. And his answer what I found fascinating. He said, if America admits what it did in 1952, if it admits using biological warfare and apologizes and compensates, then we would be open. We would be open to talking about limiting our nuclear program. Two things. The first is that that interview took place three, four months after Obama had made his speech in Cairo, in which he tried to reset the United States' relationship with 
Middle Eastern countries and had been seen to proffer some kind of admission that the United States had not always behaved entirely well in the Middle East and therefore had caused anger and resentment. And, you know, Obama's Cairo speech was a, was a really important first attempt to reach out to the Middle East and to try and say, how do we reset our relationship? North Korea saw that. And you know, the, stereo, the stereotype that we have of North Korea as being backward, ignorant, isolated. Every official I met in North Korea, and I met a lot, gave the lie to that stereotype. These guys are educated. They speak four and five languages. They know exactly what's going on in the world. That lady that you showed in there, she spoke really great English. I mean, American-style English. It was amazing. I mean, these, these people speak four and five languages. They're smart, in, intellectually smart. You know, we may not like their philosophy. I don't. But they're not fools. They had seen Obama's speech. They had seen this was the first time America was potentially open to admitting its past misdeeds as a way of opening up dialogue with a region. Interesting. I'm as sure as I can be that that North Korean official was trying to use us to send a message to Washington to say, listen, if you do that if you're prepared to go down that road with us, we can begin to discuss denuclearization. And that, you know, if that seems far-fetched, we have to remember that there are no diplomatic relations, there are no channels, diplomatic channels between Pyongyang and Washington. And in the past, they've used exiled North Korean businessmen to try and do that. You know, I'm fairly sure, no, I'm not fairly sure, I'm absolutely sure that... Pyongyang was trying to use us to send a message to Washington to say, let's see if there's a basis for us to talk. Unfortunately, the State Department, the Obama government, was not willing to do that. Not willing to go there, right? Yeah. I mean, and in, in fairness to Obama, you know, he'd only, he was relatively new in the job. And they hadn't begun, his administration hadn't begun to turn its attention to the Korean Peninsula. Um, now, would it have been different today? It certainly wouldn't have been different under Trump. Um, it was an opportunity, a potential opportunity lost, I think. Yeah, kind of a detente or something to kind of break down those barriers. You've got to start somewhere, don't you? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's really interesting. I mean, from as an American, I've never heard the story. I would think I'm relatively astute historically on on what we've done, but I'd never heard the biological warfare aspect of our relationship to North Korea. So I really enjoyed watching your documentary. And the best place to watch it is on Vimeo, correct? Well, you can watch it in one of three places. You can watch it on Vimeo. You can watch it on my website um, because it's in the film section of my website. And it, fair play to Al Jazeera. It's still on there um, on Al Jazeera. If you type in Dirty Little Secrets and Al Jazeera, you can watch it on Al Jazeera's service as well. Nice. And your website, again, is timtate, all one word, dot co dot uk, correct? 
That's correct, yeah. And so then you can learn all about Tim's bio, his books, films, and publishings and things like that. But thanks so much for sharing that story about Dirty Little Secrets with us today. I really appreciate you coming back, too. So thanks so much. Thank you for, thank you for having me. All right, Tim. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. See you then.